You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. If y'all will open your Bibles to John 4 to hear the Lord's word. Um, And he had had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samarian woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as, his, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. But then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar of water and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out, to the, went out of the town and were coming to him. We've been looking through the Gospel of John this semester in RUF, and uh, we're looking at mostly the personal one-on-one in, encounters and conversations that Jesus has with people. And last week, we looked at this really amazing conversation that Jesus has with this dude named Nicodemus who was this r- religious professor. And tonight, he, this is the very next chapter, he engages with a woman that could not be more opposite. This is a sexually promiscuous Samaritan. So think about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an insider in his culture. This woman is an outsider to her own culture. Uh, this guy is um, uh, moral and religious. She is immoral she is essentially a sex addict, as we're going to see. Um, he is uh, a leader. He is, to, he is put together. She is a total mess. He has a name. I mean, Nicodemus is in the Bible. She has no name. She's kind of a nobody. And so you see this total, almost polar opposite, two different conversations. And so I think it's going to be really fascinating to juxtapose tonight versus last week. But to, to set this up, before we get into it, some of y'all might know that when I was in college, I was in a band. And our band name was called Where Are My Pants? 
Our stuff is online somewhere. You can find it. I was the front man, the lead singer. And um, we weren't really musicians. We were more of like a comedy group. And we would sing these ridiculous songs about dust bunnies and clowns and donuts. I mean, really highbrow intellectual comedy. We, we, you know, I was thinking about this. 17 years ago, we performed at the very stage that at summer conference. So some of y'all were at summer conference at Panama City. That very stage, as students, we performed on in 17 years ago or so. And our crescendo, our big kind of closing number that really brought the house down, there were three or four of us on stage. We would pick up uh, our accordion player, whose um, stage name was Tommy Jaundice. And so we would, we would pick up Tommy Jaundice, the two of us, and we would hurl him across the stage. So his body would fly across the stage. And the, and the joke was he couldn't brace himself. Like, that, like we, he forced himself, I can't catch myself. He had to be like a dead fish. So it was just this limp fish flying through the air, and then he would just land, and the crowd would go wild. And it was kind of like our big closing number. And... I was thinking about this because uh, some of y'all who were at summer conference this past summer um, uh, know that I, I was the MC that week, which meant that it was like a platform for me to be totally idiotic and really tap into my silly side, and so I was telling dumb jokes about apps and singing songs, and just, it was fun. But there was one night, y'all don't know this, there was one night where as soon as I got finished doing my MC gig and telling jokes and being stupid up front, and the main speaker got up and started speaking, I went to the back of the room and sat down, I was sitting in a chair in the back, and I was looking at this stage that I had performed on, you know, 17 years ago, and there was this wave of feeling that just kind of crashed over me, and there was this voice that kind of accompanied this wave That said something like this. Matt, you are 36 years old. And you're still trying to be like the funny guy to college students. You are so immature. Think about your friends that were on that stage with you 17 years ago. They grew up and went off and have like real jobs. And you're still here, still trying to do the same stuff. When are you going to grow up? And it was this feeling, this voice of like, dude, I'm a total loser. And I just collapsed into this pool of shame in the back and like nearly in tears, I'm texting my wife who wasn't there that week, just like, please pray for me because I just like, I don't know what's, what I'm feeling, I don't know what's happening with me. And, uh, you know, I'm working out a lot of that still in counseling right now. But here's, here's the thing, is that voice, that feeling is the feeling of shame. It's that self-accusatory condemning, critical sense of self where you look at yourself and you say, dude, you are such an idiot. What is wrong with you? Maybe you can relate with that. Um, I, I never really felt like I was much of a shameful person and now that I'm kind of like seeing it, I just kind of like see it all over myself. For example, last week I came out of counseling and I was, <clears throat> I was, I was wrestling with how much I just beat myself up and how much I hate how I beat myself up. And I was, living, I was at home thinking about all of this. Nobody else was in the house, and I was making up the bed. And I literally said this out loud. Matt, you are so freaking mean to yourself. You see the irony of that? 
I'm scolding myself for how much I scold myself. And so, like, I can't even get out from under it sometimes. It's just kind of all over me. I feel like I'm shot through with shame. And I don't know if you can relate to that, but I feel like this woman in the story can very much relate to that. She is, like, the picture of shame. And so what I want to do tonight is really just kind of take a closer look at that. This is such a jam-packed story. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, and there's so much that we could say. So just for the sake of time, I only want to look at two things. I want to just look at the features of shame, kind of what it actually looks like in, in practice, and then we're going to look at the healing of it, okay? So the features of shame and then the healing of shame. So let's look at uh, the features of shame first, and I, want, I really want to highlight two different features from this story. If you go back to the story, here's the first feature that I want to highlight. That shame makes you hide. That's the first feature of shame. Shame makes you hide. Let me show you where I get this in the story. In verse 4, Jesus has been traveling around and he decides to stop in this area called Samaria, which I think that fact alone is worthy of a whole sermon in and of itself because, as some of you might know, Samaritans and Jewish people had real racial hostility. And the fact that Jesus would want to stop, in fact, intentionally go to this place, cross racial barriers to go and extend love and mercy to people that didn't look like him, I think, at least in our cultural moment, that is at least worth observing, that Jesus is willing to cross racial lines to love the other Again, there's a whole sermon just in that alone, but I think it's at least worth making that observation. But what I I really want you to focus in on, though, is verse 6. It says uh, in verse 6 that Jesus decides to go sit by a well and wait for a uh, drink of water. And at verse 6, I give you this little detail at the end. It says that it was the sixth hour, which means it's about noon, high noon, the hottest part of the day. And up walks this woman. And we're going to find out later in the story that this woman is extremely, she just has extreme sexual baggage. She's been married five times. She's currently shacking up with some dude that's not her husband. And up she walks, and scholars believe the reason why she is going to this particular well at noon by herself is because she was hiding. Because it's interesting, in this cultural moment, what people did, getting water, drawing water from the well was a social event. All the women would go out in the early part of the day when it was still kind of cool, like not like cool, but like not hot. And they would also go out in the cool part of the evening together where it wasn't so hot, and that's when they would get their water. And so why is this woman by herself in the hottest part of the day? And it's precisely because nobody else is there, and that's the point. She is going there because she doesn't want to hear the gossip. She doesn't want to see the looks. She doesn't want to hear the whispers behind her back. This is her little safety place. This is her chance to hide from her shame, from her disgrace, from her reputation. And so that's why she goes to this well, to hide. Some of you might know uh, the work of... Brene Brown, she's written a lot of books, and she's got some really amazing TED Talks out there. You should totally check them out. I'm reading a book of hers right now, and she she describes her work as that she's a shame researcher, which is kind of an interesting job description. I research shame for a living. Uh, But she makes this really interesting distinction between guilt and shame, which I think is pretty helpful. She says guilt has to do with behavior. Like, I made a mistake. 
Shame has to do with self. I, I am a mistake. And no doubt that is what this woman is feeling and thinking. I am a mistake. I think if you were to zoom into her inner dialogue, here's what she probably is thinking. I don't belong here. I don't fit in with these people. I am different. I don't measure up. These people are acceptable. I am not. Uh, Other people succeed. I fail. Other people have friends here. I do not. I am not enough. I am a loser. I am worthless. I am ugly. I am disgusting. That's what she's thinking about herself. I don't know if you've seen the TV show Dexter on Netflix. I don't, it's pretty graphic and gory, so I don't know if I can officially recommend it like from a pulpit in a church. Um, but if you've seen the show, the basic premise is, is about this guy named Dexter who works for the Miami Police Department. And he kind of lives this double life because even though he's like a police officer, kind of forensic guy on, on his public life, on his, in his private life, he's a serial killer. But he has found a way to kind of channel this urge to kill people into almost kind of a weird way of doing justice. So he lives by this code where he only kills other serial killers. So it's a pretty just kind of messed up premise from the beginning. But what's really interesting about the show is if you've seen all of the seasons, like I have, uh, every season, once you kind of get deep into it, begins exploring this question of what if somebody finds out about his dark evil, ugly side, what will happen? Will they be able to accept him and love him for the monster that he really is? And so in one season, his kind of lover girlfriend finds out, and that kind of blows up the relationship. In one season, there's like this father figure guy who finds out, and that kind of blows up. Uh, His brother finds out, that kind of blows up. His sister finds out, that blows up. So every season, a new person finds out about this dark, evil side of him, And kind of the moral of the story is nobody can handle the monster that he is. Nobody can actually love and accept him. And so he continues to lie, he continues to hide, he continues to kind of live this double life because if somebody sees me for who I really am, they will never accept me. And that is our story. And isn't that our greatest fear? If somebody really sees me for who I really am, Gosh, no one will ever accept me. Nobody will ever love me. And so we think, we, we, we really do think, I am too embarrassed about what I have done or what I struggle with or who I am. Nobody can find out about that stuff. I am deeply afraid. What if somebody finds out they're going to think differently of me? What if somebody finds out they're, they're going to treat me differently? I'm afraid if somebody finds out who I really am, uh, I'm afraid that that will disappoint people. I'm afraid that that will be a burden to people. I'm afraid of being too much, right? So because we have these really deep fears that if someone really sees us for who we really are, they're going to totally reject us. And so we do what this girl does is that we hide, and we don't have necessarily like wells that we go to and we hide behind. We, we have more sophisticated ways of hiding. For a lot of us, we just hide behind our personality. Our personality can just kind of adapt to our environment and we can hide behind that almost like a mask so that somebody can just interact with the mask and not actually get to know the real us. For, for a lot of us, we hide behind our schedule. You know, we just pack our schedule so full 
And we move from one place to the other so quickly. We're never in one place long enough for, to, for anyone to actually know us. I think this is why a lot of us are involved in like three or four different ministries. Just bouncing around from here to here to here to here to here. Because you, you would rather be noticed than actually known. Because to be known is terrifying. So we hide behind our personality. We hide in our schedule. We, we retreat into Netflix, we retreat into porn, we retreat into food, into shopping, into exercise. I mean, we have a million different ways to hide when it feels like nobody can actually get to know me, so I'm going to go hide. That's what shame does. It makes us hide. That's the first feature. Here's the second feature. Shame also makes you thirsty. Shame makes you thirsty. And here's what I mean by that. Well, if you look at the story... Here's Jesus at this well, and here's this woman that comes up, and he asks her for water. And I won't go into all the details, even though it's a really fascinating conversation. They start talking about water. And he eventually, at one point, says, hey, I have water that if you drink the water that I'm offering you, you will never thirst again. You'll, have to, you'll never have to come back to this well again. So if you see it in verse 15, she's like, sweet, like sign me up, hook me up with like the magic water that you got. And it's really fascinating. Look at Jesus' very next statement in verse 16. Hey, go call your husband and come here. Now, what in the world does her husband have to do with her thirst? What does her love life have anything to do with this conversation about water? It has everything to do with her thirst. Because she's going to say to him, "Uh, I don't have a husband. And he's like, huh, that's interesting. Yeah, you've actually had five husbands. And the dude that you're sleeping with right now, you're not married to him either. What, what is he doing? What is he saying? Here's what he's doing. He is pressing into her. Hey, think about this well for a second. Every day people come to this well over and over and over because they're thirsty. They need water, so they keep coming back over and over and over and over. And think about your sex life for a second. Think about your romantic life for a second. Sound familiar? Over and over and over, guy after guy after guy, you're thirsty. You're spiritually dehydrated, is what he's saying to her. There's this correlation between earthly thirst, going to the well over and over and over, and there's this deep spiritual dehydration that she's beginning to recognize. And that's the thing, shame always leaves you thirsty. It never quenches you. It always leaves you exhausted because the way that shame runs in your life is it, run, it, it dominates your thinking with shoulds. I should pray more. I should read my Bible more. I should stop doing what I'm doing on the weekends. I should, I should, I should not, I should not because what shame does is it tells you you're not who you should be And it's completely on you to change that. So that's exhausting. There's no rest. There's no chance to just stop and be because you're just, you're not the way that you should be. And the way that that um, begins to actually kind of spin out is I've thought about college students, as I've interacted with college students, I think that there are two different types of, um, you know, it's like running on a hamster wheel. Two different types of shame cycles, I'll put it where you can get trapped in this way of thinking where you're just exhausting, no quenching of your thirst over and over and over, same thing over and over again. There's two different hamster wheels. There's like the moral 
good one, the, the, you know, the socially acceptable hamster wheel cycle, and there's the immoral one. And here's kind of what these look like one at a time. The moral shame cycle looks like this. You want to be a good person. You want to stay in line. You want to do all the right things. You want to follow the rules. You want to work hard. You want to get good grades. You want to be a nice person. You want to be a good person. So you go out and you do that. But inevitably, life happens, and you either fail in some capacity, or you're discouraged or disappointed with yourself, or frustrated with yourself, or you feel like you're not doing enough, and in some sense, you feel that weight of shame. Ugh. Your response to the shame is, gosh, I should have known better. I should have tried harder. I should not have done that. So I'm going to double down, and I'm going to try harder. And you go out in life, and you try harder, and you get more discipline, and you put more practice, you pour more techniques in practice, and you try harder, and you try harder, and inevitably the same thing happens. You fail, or you're not doing enough, or you get discouraged, and the shame happens. And when the shame hits, you think, gosh, I should not have done that. I should have known better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do something differently. I'm going to double down my efforts, and you do the same thing, and the same thing, and the same thing, and the same thing. And you almost don't know of any other way to be where your whole existence is, I have to work, I have to perform, I don't know how else to do this. If I stop, I feel guilty because it feels like I'm wasting time. If I rest, I, I feel guilty because I could be doing something more productive. And so you have no permission to just be, you're just exhausted. And you may not be religious at all, but Jesus is saying that cycle is proof of a very deep spiritual dehydration. Some of us that consider ourselves Christians, you know what we do? We use shame to try to make ourselves become better Christians. Gosh, I messed up. Dang it, I screwed up with lust again. Gosh, I should read my Bible more. And you almost are like, bad Christian, bad Christian. And you are shaming yourself to read the Bible more and be a better Christian. And you know as well as I do, it does not work because you're still stuck. You're still spiritually dehydrated. That's the good, moral hamster wheel. Perfectionism, pressure, anxiety, over and over and over again. But there's an immoral shame cycle as well, and it kind of looks like this. You do something that violates your conscience. Maybe um, you drink too much, you push the boundaries sexually with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you hook up with somebody you don't even know at a party or whatever, whatever. You do something to where you wake up the next morning and you're like, gosh, I'm such an idiot. I cannot believe I did that. I will never do that again. But the thing is that shame feeling makes you feel so worthless. And the fact that you've already crossed that line, it just feels like it's so much easier to cross it again. And in fact, to cross it again is going to give you a little taste of life because whatever it is, the porn, the alcohol, the drugs, whatever, the sex, whatever it is, that gave you some taste of life, even for a second. And so you go back to the thing to medicate the shame and the pain that you're feeling. And the moment that you go to medicate and numb the pain with the very thing that caused the pain to begin with, that's called addiction. That's, that's the addiction cycle, and, and you're stuck. You're numbing out the pain with the very thing that's causing the pain. And that's, that's this woman. Guy after guy after guy, sexual relationship after sexual relationship after sexual relationship, and she can't get out, she can't stop. And some of you are in that hamster wheel. Some of you are actually on both, believe it or not. Where externally, you're trying to be the good guy, you're trying to be the good girl, you're trying to be impressive to everybody, and yet you have this secret, dark addiction that you don't want anybody to know about. You're doing both at the same time. Extremely spiritually dehydrated. 
So what do we do? That's what shame does to us. It makes all of us hide. We don't want to be real. We don't want to be authentic. We don't want anybody to actually know us. And gosh, it's exhausting. It makes you thirsty. So where do we get healing? Well, let's look at the story. How does this woman get healing? Because she most definitely experiences healing in the story. Here is this woman who is a total disgrace to her community. So much shame, and what does Jesus do with her? What does he do with her? He just simply sits and talks with her. He just simply is with her. He just doesn't leave her, but engages with her in love. Now, to sit there and to be with this woman, do you know what that would have cost Jesus? Do you know what this would have done to his reputation to be seen with this woman? I mean, what would people have said? What would people have thought? What conclusions would they have jumped to about why Jesus is with this woman alone? His entire image is at stake by just simply associating with this woman. And you even see this in verse 27. His disciples come back. They had left. They're going to get lunch. And they come back. And look what it says. It says that they marveled that he's talking to this woman. Like they couldn't believe it. Like, Jesus, why are you talking to her? But here's the deal. Very simply, Jesus is willing to bear her shame so that she doesn't have to. Her shame, her reputation, her image is being poured on him. He is totally willing to be misunderstood with her at the expense of his own reputation. And that's how Jesus heals us. It's, he takes our place. He takes our shame off of us and puts it on him. He bears our pain, our shame, our sin at the cross for us. I mean, think about the cross for a second. There are two fascinating details that the Gospel of John tells you later on. If you, go, if you go into chapter 19, I'm going to highlight two details real quick. In John 19, 23, it says that when Jesus is being crucified, that the soldiers had taken his clothes and they're gambling for them at the foot of the cross for his garments, which means what? That Jesus is naked. On the cross, he's totally exposed. He is known and seen by everybody And he is not loved. He is rejected. He is condemned by the people and by God himself. And there's this other little detail. In John 19, 28, just a couple of verses later, Jesus is on the cross, and you know what he says? He says, I am thirsty. Jesus is thirsty on the cross. He who is the fountain of living water is becoming spiritually dehydrated on the cross. So you put these two details together, I think it's unbelievably fascinating. What is Jesus doing? He is becoming our shame for us. He is exposed and condemned. He is becoming thirsty in our place so that we don't have to feel it anymore. He's taking it off of us and he's putting it on him. He's receiving the condemnation. He's receiving the blame. He's receiving the shouts of, you idiot, you are worthless, you are ugly, how could you? It's falling on him not on you. You know, um, Tim Keller has this amazing quote um, where he says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. 
But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. And this woman experiences it. Did you notice in in verse 29, she runs back into this village, this village that had deemed her a total outcast, and she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. That's her way of saying, come and see this man that knew everything about me and he didn't leave. Come see this man that saw everything of who I really am and he stayed and he didn't want anything from me. He just loved me. He just accepted me. He just was for me. You know, Jesus would never talk to you the way that you talk to yourself. When you think about the messages that you send to yourself, the messages I send to myself, you idiot. You are so fat. You are so worthless. Jesus would never speak to you like that. Jesus would look at you and say, I know what you are feeling, and it hurts like hell. I want you to know that I'm with you, and I see you, and I love you. And when you are seen and known and loved at the same time, that is what begins to heal your shame. I'll end with uh, this story. This is a story I heard from uh, another campus minister named John Trapp. He's the RUF guy at the University of Texas, different UT in Austin. And he told this story that I guess goes way back in the day. Uh, It took place in an RUF community at Mississippi State. And in this, in their group, there was this guy that was like nursing this like mega crush on one of the girls in the group. Only problem was, girl in the group was dating this guy that was like a total tool shed, like not the greatest guy in the world. So you got bad dude, tool shed guy, and girl, and they're dating, and good guy who's crushing on girl, there's nothing he can do about it. So he's just kind of playing the waiting game. And by their senior year, um, one day kind of the news breaks that bad dude has broken up with girl. So, like, she's on the market, and he's very excited. And he's like, I can't just call her the day of, you know, she breaks up with, you know, they're broken up. i got to wait a couple of days. So he waits a couple of days. But the thing that he doesn't know is that she's pregnant. The reason why they broke up is because good, bad dude impregnated girl and then peaced out when he found, that she, found out she was pregnant. I told you he was a tool shed, right? And so she's pregnant. She's single. Good guy doesn't know it. He calls her up and says, hey, um, I don't know about the timing of this, but I'd love to take you out sometime if you'd be interested. And she's now, she's now caught in this kind of internal tension because she's like, she wants to go out with him, but at the same time, she, like, she needs to let him know. And so she just kind of says, hey, there's something you need to know. I'm pregnant. And he is so caught off guard, he doesn't really know what to say. He just says, I love pregnant women. (laughs) And it turns out they end up going out. They're married to this day. He helped raise this child that she eventually gave birth to. They have kids of their own. It's like an amazing story. But what I think is so amazing about that story, oh, no, it's so sweet. It's an amazing story. But what I love about that story is because in some ways it shows us what Jesus' reaction is to us. Jesus is like, hey, 
come to me. I want you to be with me. I want to be with you. And there's something inside you that's like, ah, Jesus, I'm a porn addict. And Jesus looks at you and says, I love porn addicts. You say, Jesus, no, I'm a liar. I love liars. You say, Jesus, I have a really unhealthy relationship with food. Uh, I am incredibly insecure. I am obsessed about what people think about me. And Jesus looks at you and says, I love people like that. Shame is always telling you what you should or shouldn't be. And it is the love and it is the grace of Jesus that gives you permission to just be. His love and his grace for you is simply just an invitation to not be okay. Because you know that he knows everything about you that's not okay and he loves you all the same. Now here's the the very last thing that I'll say. And here is where shame is really sneaky. Because you can be here tonight and you can hear the gospel, you can hear the grace and the love and the compassion and the safety of Jesus. And there can be this voice inside of you that that can say, gosh, I should have known this already. Like, I should have figured this out by now. Of course it is the love and the grace of Jesus that helps me with my shame. Gosh, why am I hiding? Why am I beating myself up? You see what you're doing? You're responding with the same voice of shame and self-accusation. You're just, you're, you're saying the sh- you're just shooting all over yourself. You're shooting, you're doing all the shoulds. It was very close. <laughs> but what I want you to hear tonight is this. That the gospel really is the reality. That Jesus comes to you and says, hey, I know what is true about you. And it's okay. Because I love you. That will begin to melt and heal that thing that's called shame inside of you and inside of me. Let me pray. Father, we do have this voice inside of us that is so critical, so condemning, the things that we say to ourselves, the way that we beat ourselves up. Father, I do pray that you would uh, be gracious to us to open up our eyes so that we could see your grace, that we could rest in the safety of your love. Would you free us from these voices? Would you free me from just the constant barrage of accusation and self-hatred. Oh, Father, free us just simply to be and, and to, to be okay and to accept the reality that we're not okay because we have your love anyway. Father, I pray that that would heal us, maybe even beginning tonight for the first time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>